Progressive News Network on Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janine Moloff, your producer and host. I uh, just want to remind everybody, even though we haven't had an EJR, EJR show in a long time, uh, this is also the home of the Environmental Justice Report as well, which I also produce and host. Um, I know we've been focusing a lot on our Sunday show on the political side of things, and there's been a few members of the audience that really want to hear something more about the environmental issues. But the thing is this, when we talk about the fact that on the ballot, this presidential election in 2024, yes, democracy is very much on, on the line. If we don't win these political battles, we're certainly not going to win the environmental ones. Make no mistake about it. The law has been jerry-rigged, but in favor of large corporations that basically see planet Earth as their sewer to dump on. So if we don't take care of these voting rights issues, if we don't take care of these political issues, then all the other things, especially the environmental rights, it's not going to happen. So it all weaves together. None of us really live in an isolated island. So that's why we're focusing so much on it, because make no mistake about it, the Republican, the GOP party of Trump is determined to destroy democratic rule, period. There's no guesswork here. And Trump's their front man. So this week, I'm going to discuss the latest Republican attack on voting rights. And when I say voting rights, we're really talking about specifically the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that was basically got rid of the Jim Crow laws that kept minorities, especially the black community, from being able to cast their ballots. Put bluntly, uh, you know, the states that used these, these methods, whether it was a poll tax where you had to pay some uh, a tax for the right to vote, but whites did not have to, or whether it was a literacy test. And some of these literacy tests, like a very famous uh, black female Democrat, Fannie Lou Hamer, took a literacy test, I think it was back in like 1968, that would have rivaled any doctoral dissertation defense. All right? Or maybe there was this giant jar of marbles, and you had to guess correctly how many marbles were in the jar. It was that lunacy. And the whole idea was to make sure that the black community would not be allowed to vote. But they hid behind technically the rule of law, but it really wasn't. All right? So we're talking about that, and, you know, there was a decision out of the Eighth Circuit Court, federal court, which is based here in St. Louis. And it dealt another death blow to the Voting Rights Act. Um, the first death blow was really dealt in, um, in the Shelby decision through John Roberts. So we're going to talk about both of them. Um, so that's our big story. Now, our second story, we're going to talk a little more about Project 2025, which is, again, the Republican blueprint to establish a presidential dictatorship. Make no mistake about it and a very brutal one at that. And we're going to talk more about the Insurrection Act and why that particular very old law needs to be rewritten. You know, and it really speaks to even a bigger thing than even Project 2025. It really speaks to two things, actually. One, the fact that the presidency has too much power and it needs to be stripped down. And number two, the fact that the legal profession themselves whether you're a Democrat or Republican makes no difference. The legal profession has absconded 
with democracy, all right, in favor of billable hours. This is my opinion. So there is a letter that I'm going to read, and it was actually an editorial written um, by some Republicans that do believe in rule of law. Former federal judge J. Michael Lettig is one of them. Uh, George Conway, he's now divorced. He was married to that skinny bitch, Kellyanne. Uh, and then, let's see, who else was, I, there was one other author, I can't recall his name, but we'll get to it. And I'll read the letter, all right? And they're saying legal profession has to, you know, basically come to the rescue of this attack on democracy. And, and that would be lovely, but I don't share their faith in the legal profession at all. Okay, I think that the lawyers that are pushing Project 2025 and the same lawyers that also push the Stop the Steal um, frivolous lawsuits, these people should not only be investigated and most likely disbarred permanently, but they should also be criminally investigated because they were involved in a coup to overthrow our government and face criminal prosecution and, yes, incarceration. So, again, I don't think telling the legal profession, now, now, be nice, you know, be good doobies, I don't think that's enough. That's just me. Um, I've had several friends that went on to become lawyers, and they would say, Janine, why didn't you go to law school? I said, well, first of all, I didn't have the funding for it. I was in plenty of debt just for my other degrees. And, honestly, the practice of law is a big snooze. It's a lot of paperwork. It's not Perry Mason, it's not, and it's not law and order. It's not like you think it is. But, you know, the people that I did know that went to law school, one of the first things they learned in law school, which I found very disturbing, is they, they were taught in law school that the lawyers are the lawmakers. And I went, hmm, I don't remember seeing that in the Constitution. No, the lawyers are not the lawmakers. The lawyers are those that are supposed to know the law well enough to protect us or prosecute, or go on to be judges and become referees. They are not the lawmakers. The people, lawyer and non-lawyer, are the lawmakers. So this bad attitude starts in law school and is fostered there. All right, so we're going to talk about that. We do have, oh, excuse me, our Jackass of the Week Award. And again, it's another twofer, okay? What can I tell you? There's been so many jackasses out there and so much I, think, I believe the technical term is so much jackassery that it was hard to pick, but we found something. And then, of course, I forgot to put on the advert, we have a new Randy Rainbow musical interlude. So one of the things I want to also tell the audience is I've been working on a piece on voting rights, a written piece, uh, for my, my, um, my publishing home, Nation of Change, and then Eurasia Review. And Honestly, between that and other things, I haven't, I apologize because the, the sources I'm going to quote today, I haven't fully finished reading myself. They're written by attorneys. I'm not an attorney. So we're going to muddle through as best we can, okay, uh, in interest of full disclosure. So bear with me, and let's just kind of move on with the show. Oh, and I will take questions if we have time. All right. So. This week, again, we're discussing the first stories, the Republican attack on voting rights. Um, and, and put bluntly, this is happening because the GOP knows, GOP means Republican, they can't win elections legitimately because they don't have anything but hate and fear to offer. So they attack voting rights. 
Now, a week ago, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, based in St. Louis, struck down another major protection that was formerly in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Okay? So, again, before we start with the first story, let me back up a little bit. All right, it's been a busy week and I'm tired. Before we start with that, though, I want to emphasize once again that this presidential election cycle of 2024 is a war, and it's a war to either destroy democracy or save it. And yet, the mainstream media still paints this false equivalent scenario. And I saw it this week, uh, I saw it just this morning on, quote, this week with George Stephanopoulos. And on the panel, you know, he has a panel of people, of politicos that are commenting, and, and most of them aren't journalists, they're political operatives, so they really, in my opinion, shouldn't be on the panel, okay? But that's me. But one of them was the former RNC Republican National Committee chair and Trump's first White House chief of staff, Rince Priebus. Now, the reason I bring this up is because Priebus, you know, sat there, the others were talking about how this is a war on democracy itself, a war to end democracy. And Priebus just sat there in his privileged self looking bored, and then he started trying to gaslight the rest of us by claiming that he doesn't believe the, quote, democracy is on the ballot stuff, end quote. Stuff? He calls it stuff. Now, I want to remind the public, first of all, that Rince Priebus rose from the Tea Party to uh, national prominence, but he's also mainstream GOP. You know, the Republicans try and claim that, well, these extremists, they're not the mainstream Republican Party. Yes, they are. It was a mainstream Republican Party that pushed the idea of the unitary executive, that the president is the executive branch with no restraint. Okay, Donald Trump may be the manifestation and result of all this, but this started a long ago, back with the Powell memo and in the late 60s leading on through Reagan, both Bushes, and now and, and Trump. So make no this is mainstream GOP. And this war on democracy stuff, as Mr. Priebus called it, is being promoted by mainstream Republicans with only a few exceptions. And the few exceptions would be, you know, Liz Cheney, again, J. Michael Luddig, George Conway, and a few others. So I want to make that clear, because right, I'm tired of this nonsense. All right, so let's move on with story number one. This is how the Republican Party has been attacking voting rights, the latest on the Eighth Circuit decision, and then we're going to review the earlier Shelby decision. Now, what did these two decisions do in short? Okay, so the Shelby decision is older, and it was pushed by Chief Justice John Roberts. And Chief Justice John Roberts has been featured uh, in the medium as, media as this, like, moderate, you know, reasonable, not racist. And you know what? It's all unadulterated bullshit. John Roberts has made ending the Voting Rights Act of 1965 his personal crusade since his early days in Department of Justice. Make no mistake about it. And the Shelby decision did the first, uh, basically the Shelby decision led by John Roberts I think it was in 2010, don't quote me, we'll get to it in a little while, that ended what was called pre-clearance. Now, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 covers quite a bit because there was a lot of skullduggery happening, especially in southern states and maybe a few midwestern states. 
And so preclearance was, you know, even though the Constitution says the states can determine how they're going to run their elections, preclearance said because the southern states had such an egregious and vile reputation where they robbed the black community of the right to vote, that any change in any voting law at the state level had to be, the, the plan had to be submitted to the federal government first, to DOJ, and it had to be approved. In other words, pre-cleared. And if it wasn't, that state couldn't do it. Didn't matter if it was Mississippi, Georgia, wherever. And we're talking about the former Confederacy. Let's get real. So that was, and the Shelby decision struck that out because incredulously, John Roberts said that because he personally didn't see much racism anymore, that it must not exist anymore. Now, I, I wish I could say I was making this up. I'm not, okay? So that was strike, That was the first death blow or near-death blow. Now, the second one is this Eighth Circuit decision. And again, the, the judge in the Eighth Circuit that wrote it is a Trump-appointed judge. Now, there's a piece here in Vox. But before we get to that, I'm going to keep ch checking my time here. We're going to talk about, I heard some information from another lawyer who has a podcast. Her name is Emily Galvin Almanza, and she has a group called Partners for Justice. And she explained it quite succinctly, okay? The article in Vox was, is by Ian Milheiser, another legal expert. But Milheiser gets very long and drawn out. So the short version, the Cliff Notes version, still accurate, by Emily Galvin Almanza is this Eighth Circuit attack on the Voting Rights Act eliminates what are called private rights of action, okay? Now, if you don't know what private rights of action are, and most of us don't, it means, it means a right to sue if you're not a member of the government. So the way the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was written, if you felt, and you've had some proof, that you, your right to vote had been infringed upon in some way or denied or you were discriminated against or the roadblocks put in your way and you were a member of a protected class, especially the black community, that you didn't have to wait for the state-level attorney general to file a lawsuit. And you didn't have to wait for the D Department of Justice in D.C. to do it. You could act, actually sue um, as a, a private citizen or a group. So the end, that's why the NAACP could sue if there were voting rights, um, uh, voting rights violations and other groups, okay? That's why certain individuals could sue. That's what private act, rights of action are. Without the private rights of action, and this is what this decision did, you don't have a right to sue for voting rights violations against the law unless either your state-level attorney general brings the case or unless the Federal Department of Justice does. Now, if you live in a state here like here in Missouri, we have a state-level attorney general, Andrew Bailey, that in my opinion is incredibly racist and anti-Semitic, and misogynist. Do you honestly think that Mr. Bailey's going to bring that? No, of course not. All right? This argument is intellectually dishonest, okay? And what they do is, according to Emily Galvin Almanza, you know, when you get rid of this argument in the Eighth Circuit, she called it intellectually dishonest rulings using, you know, undercover of legalese. All right? And so 
this is, you know, Ms. Galvanza called, you know, eliminating the private right of action in this Eighth Circuit ruling, basically sends the Voting Rights Act to, quote, a sneaky path to meaningfulness. Meaning, I'm sorry, sneaky path to meaninglessness. In other words, it, if you've already gotten rid of preclearance, so that these states, why these states can gerrymander so much against communities of color, uh, since preclearance was eliminated, the need for it, that's, uh, you know, these uh, voter ID laws that make it difficult for certain people to obtain specific ID. All these discriminatory practices are allowed now because states, preclearance is no longer required. Now you get rid of the private right of action, in other words, the right to sue, you know, you're, you're dependent on either, you know, your state-level attorney general or the feds. Well, now you have no right to sue. Okay? You just don't. So it literally defangs the Voting Rights Act. There's a few other provisions, but this is, you know, kind of like a death row. It really is. It's death knell. Um, so this is what's happening here. Now, I've got some notes here. Give me a second here. Sorry, folks. So, all right, so that's what this is really about. All right, sorry about that, folks. So let's move on to the first article. It was in Vox, uh, written by Ian Milheiser, and it was published November 28th. Um, the headline is The New Trump Judge Revolt. I'm sorry. Headline, the new Trump judge revolt against uh, the Voting Rights Act explained. At the very moment the Supreme Court appears to be moderating on voting rights, GOP judges are going after America's most important voting rights law. Okay? Now, as for Ian Milheiser, he's a senior correspondent at Vox. He um, has his law degree from Duke University. He's authored two books on the Supreme Court. And his main focus is on the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and what he calls the, quote, decline of liberal democracy in the United States, end quote. So the Supreme Court has had a record of having what he calls a long period of hostility um, toward any claim brought under the Federal Voting Rights Act. And I'm just going to read straight from this, okay? So according to Vox, quote, the Supreme Court, after a long period of hostility toward any claim brought under the, voting, the Federal Voting Rights Act, recently signaled that this hostility has limits. Last June, the court surprised nearly everyone who follows voting rights litigation by declaring Alabama's racially gerrymandered maps illegal in ordering the state to draw a second majority black congressional district. And goes on to say, quote, yet if the Supreme Court's June decision in Allen v. Milligan 2023 was supposed to be a signal that justices intend to keep at least some safeguards against racism in elections in place, several Republican appointees to the lower courts missed the memo. Last week, as most Americans were thinking about their Thanksgiving dinners, a pair of federal appeals courts handed down some of the sharpest attacks on the Voting Rights Act, the landmark 1965 law prohibiting race discrimination in U.S. elections in the law's history. Okay, so the first was an opinion, and it was from a divided panel in the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit here in St. Louis, to our shame. Now, if this, if this judgment from the Eighth Circuit is upheld by the Supreme Court, affirmed, 
According to Milheiser, it could, quote, virtually destroy the Voting Rights Act, and that's this document also in box. Okay. Now, the eight, here's the background. The Eighth Circuit's opinion, the case was Arkansas State Conference. Um, let me start again. Ah! The case the Eighth Circuit considered was Arkansas State Conference NAACP versus Arkansas Public Policy Panel. Now, it was written by Trump-appointed Judge David Strass. Um, and it, again, basically says that private parties like the NAACP or even individuals they no longer have the right to bring a lawsuit. They know there's no private rights of action anymore, uh, that all such lawsuits have to be brought by the Justice Department, either at the federal level or state uh, attorney general. And according to Milheiser, quote, the decision is dead wrong and it conflicts with decades of precedent, end quote. Now, for those of you that are, I'm going to take a little coffee here. Excuse me. For those of you that are not sure what precedent is, it's not president like the president of the United States. Precedent is the root word is proceed. In other words, what came before. And our legal system is based on the idea that judgments uh, piggyback on what what it was what came before. That we're trying to be consistent to the spirit of the law. Now, there was a dissenter from the Eighth Circuit. Uh, I believe it's eight, sir. Yeah, Judge Levinsky Smith. And Judge Levinsky Smith wrote a dissent that noted that, quote, over the past 40 years, litigants have brought 182 successful lawsuits under the Voting Rights Act. Only 15 were brought solely by the DOJ, and that's according to uscourts.gov. Okay, think about that for a minute. Voting Rights Act. You know, it's over the past 40 years, there have been 182 successful lawsuits. In other words, groups brought charges against these states, you know, we call the old Confederacy, because they were violating the law, the Voting Rights Act 1965, and they were successful. And of that 182, only 15 were brought by the Department of Justice. You know, somehow I don't have a whole lot of, of confidence in DOJ. Okay, just numbers, the numbers are right there. According to, you know, again, Milheiser, quote, if Strass is Judge Strass, unusual reading of the law were correct. Nearly 92% of all these victorious lawsuits should have ended in defeat for the plaintiffs, end quote. Now, I think that Milheiser's being too generous. He calls it an unusual reading of the law. It's not unusual. Judge Strass knew what he was doing. It's an illegitimate reading of the law. Now, I'm ashamed to say I looked up Judge Strath, and he comes from a Jewish upbringing. Shame on him. What's the saying? A shanda on him, a disgrace. But you know what? There are sonder commandos, traitors in every group, and it's inexcusable. Um, you know, as a people that know discrimination, we, sh we should be on the side of those who are being discriminated against, not on the side of the oppressors. So Judge Strath, I would say not an unusual reading. It's a totally illegitimate and garbage reading. Okay. Now, that's the Eighth Circuit. But then something else happened recently. Day after Thanksgiving, according to Milheiser, the Eleventh Circuit handed down a decision as well, which also attacked a core principle of the Voting Rights Act. 
And this was another Trump judge, Elizabeth Branch, and the opinion was in uh, was in uh, a case called Rose v. Secretary. And this is, let's see now, yeah, United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, okay? Now, Judge Elizabeth Branch's opinion, the 11th Circuit, according to Milheiser, not as aggressive as Strass's, quote, hold, let me read it, okay, quote, the 11th Circuit handed down its own decision attacking a core principle of the Voting Rights Act. Trump judge Elizabeth Branch's opinion in Rose v. Secretary isn't quite as aggressive as Strass's wholesale attack on the landmark law. While Strass's opinion could potentially neutralize the Voting Rights Act in its entirety, Branch's opinion would only permit states to use one particular method that has historically been used to disenfranchise voters of color. goes on to say, quote, Specifically, Rose asked whether states may elect multi-member bodies such as the legislature using an at-large scheme where every member of the body is elected by the state as a whole. Okay. Now, the Supreme Court, quote, as the Supreme Court warned in Rogers v. Lodge in 1982, quote, at-large voting schemes in multi-member districts tend to minimize the voting strength of minority groups by permitting the political majority to elect all representatives of the district. Thus, in a state like Georgia, where white people make up nearly 60% of the population, white voters can join together to, protect, to prevent the black minority from electing anyone to a state board if the state uses an at-large system to elect those board members. So Judge Branch, her little scheme was, okay, we're going to have, you know, this these boards that will kind of assist, I guess, the state-level attorney general in these accusations that the Voting Rights Act's been violated, but the white majority is going to elect those members, so those members aren't going to be people that are going to want to pursue this, that are going to, that are going to care. These, aren't, these, these board members aren't going to be people that are going to care about voting rights for black folks, period. Okay. Um, and then it goes on to say, quote, um, nevertheless, Branch's decision in Rose would make it extraordinarily simple for states to use at-large systems that could not be challenged in court, even though both the Supreme Court and lower federal courts have repeatedly permitted cha challenges to at-large systems that lock racial minority groups out of power. Branch's opinion even lists nearly a dozen cases challenging such at-large systems. Okay? So this is what we're dealing with here. These Trump judges, no, they're not on the Supreme Court. It's true, they're not. But they're federal judges nonetheless. This is why, for so many reasons, Trump cannot be allowed to be president ever again. This is why, even if you don't like Joe Biden, and I'm not a great fan myself, newsflash, the alternative is far, far worse. And the presidents appoint judges. And these judges often have, especially federal judges, they have lifetime appointments. Think about it. This is not the time to throw a tantrum because you don't think Joe Biden is progressive enough. Grow up, Junior. Okay? So. Okay, so let me go back here again. Um, a little more coffee. All right, so. This article I'm just reading straight from, it goes on to say, quote, these decisions, both by Trump judges, should alarm anyone who cares about voting rights. I'm just reading straight from this quote. While the court's decision in Milligan suggests that at the very least, Strauss's attempt to 
The Voting Rights Act is likely to be reversed by the current panel of justices. Judges like Strass and Branch are hardly outliers among the right-wing advocates and Federalist Society stalwarts that Trump appointed. If anything, their records suggest they are right in the heartland of modern-day Republican appointees to the federal bench. Okay, so, and he goes on to say, quote, and that means even if the Supreme Court resists these new efforts to destroy the one federal law, law that likely did more than any other to end Jim Crow, there is a serious risk the entire law could fall if Republicans such as Trump himself get to appoint more judges to the Supreme Court. Now, Millheiser goes, end quote, so Millheiser goes into Judge Strass's opinion, which, you know, he calls a train wreck. So what was the question in this Arkansas case? involving the NAACP. Well, the specific question is whether Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and again, that's the provision that allows lawsuits challenging, quote, racially discriminatory voting practices by states may, okay, let me go back here. Okay, I want to make sure I get this right. Again, I'm not a lawyer. So here's what Millheiser had to say about this case. And again, this is the one that eliminates private rights of action. It means groups like the NAACP, um, as well as individuals, no, if it stands, no longer have the right to sue under the Voting Rights Act. That can only happen from either the Department of Justice at a federal level or a state level attorney general. You know, and we're stuck with a racist like Andrew Bailey, so it ain't going to happen. So according to Millheiser, quote, the specific question in the Arkansas case is whether Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that's the provision that allows lawsuits challenging racially discriminatory voting practices by states may be enforced by private parties or if these lawsuits may only be brought by the Justice Department. For decades, courts, including the Supreme Court, have allowed private parties to bring such suits. Okay, goes on to say, quote, and as Judge Smith wrote in his dissent, 167 of these private plaintiffs have brought successful lawsuits under Section 2, including the plaintiffs in the Milligan case. Okay. I apologize that I'm reading straight from this article, but again, Millheiser says it far better than I can. So to go on, quote, to understand why Judge Strass's opinion departing from this longstanding consensus is wrong, it's helpful to understand the Supreme Court's decisions governing what are known as implied rights of action, and implied rights of action are in quotes. Okay. So you have to kind of follow it. The legalese, Yes, it obfuscates, it confuses, but it's what we're stuck with. So the article goes on to explain that, you know, federal laws sometimes will have language in it that explicitly states, you know, that private parties, you know, in other words, individuals and groups who are not part of the government have a right of action. A right of action means a right to sue. And they do so against certain defendants. Now, other times, you might have a legal document that might explicitly state private parties may not file these lawsuits, okay? And according to Milheiser, quote, it is common, for example, for presidential executive orders to contain language stating that the order does not create any right or benefit which can be enforced in federal court. <coughs> but... Millheiser goes on to ask, you know, what if a law doesn't say one way or another? Okay. What if the law is so vague, it doesn't say you can't bring a private, you can't sue if you're a private group or an individual, 
or doesn't say that you can? Well, the answer to that question has changed over time, according to Milheiser. There was a case in 1964, J.I. Case v. Borak, and this was decided in 1964, the year before the Voting Rights Act became law in 1965. And in this one, the Supreme Court said that courts should read federal statutes, what do you say, generously uh, to, quote, allow the parties who benefit from those laws to bring federal lawsuits. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Uh, quote, it is the duty of the courts, the Supreme Court held in Borak, to, quote, be alert to provide such remedies as are necessary to make effective the congressional purpose, end quote. It goes on to say, quote, the Supreme Court explained a few years later in a Voting Rights Act case that, quote, a federal statute passed to protect a class of citizens, although not specifically authorizing members of the protected class to institute suits, nevertheless implied a private right of action. Okay, so back then, the Supreme Court said, yeah, you have a right to sue. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry about me when I start coughing like this. Again, <coughs> cold weather. So it goes on now. After 1965, after the Voting Rights Act had been signed into law, there were decisions handed down by more conservative courts that basically said the judiciary and the courts really you know, shouldn't be so quick to find implied rights of action within a federal statute, okay? In other words, don't volunteer that information. And again, in this instance, when they call themselves conservative, I call them anti-democracy. Okay? So the most significant of those decisions where they said, don't be so quick to give implied rights to sue, is a case known as Alexander v. Sandoval in 2001. And this case, you know, said that, quote, statutes that focus on the person regulated rather than the individuals protected create no implication of an intent to confer rights on a particular class of citizens. So, According to Milheiser, under the Sandoval decision of 01, quote, if a federal law uses language like, quote, no state shall do X, instead of, quote, all persons have a right to X, courts typically should not, should not permit private lawsuits under that statute. Now, look at how stingy that decision is. I mean, look at how, look at the garbage of that Sandoval decision, okay? It's the difference between no state should discriminate against black voters. Let's say that with the no state shall do X. And they said that instead of all black, all members of the black community have a right to equal voting rights, guess what? Then these courts should not allow these private lawsuits brought by non-governmental groups. Okay. Now, what is really the difference between no state shall discriminate against black folk, for instance, and all, per, all black folk have a right to equal voting rights? The, the goal is the same. Okay, this is the difference between the spirit of law and the letter of law. And it's really, it really just 
drives me crazy, okay? Um, you know, when you talk about the spirit of law and the letter of law, the spirit of law is saying no stealing, okay? We don't steal. Stealing is illegal. The letter of the law creates excuses. It's like, you know, you know, when I was a little girl, you know, I remember going into the old Woolworths with my mother. I think I was maybe four years old. And she said, Nanini, that was my nickname. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Sorry about that, folks. My mom said, Nanini, you can't take something off the shelf that doesn't belong to you. You want something, you're going to have to ask mommy if she'll buy it for you. And I understood that. Well, you know, children about four years of age, even bright children, are very concrete. There was this little toy parasol that fell on the floor. It wasn't on the shelves. Picked it up, started playing with it. My mother said, saw it, she said, Nanini, does that belong to you? And I told her, I said, it wasn't on the shelves, it's on the floor, so yeah. That's the mentality of these damn lawyers and judges that believe in the letter of the law over the spirit of the law. My mother, being the good woman that she was, she didn't yell. She explained to me, it still doesn't belong to me, and if I keep it, that's stealing. And then she very gently said, now you need to go tell the manager what happened and apologize, and I did. Okay? So these lawyers have pushed the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, they're that childish. So are these damn judges. So, according to, again, Milheiser, the main thrust of Strass's opinion in that case is that Sandoval, quote, should be read retroactively to neutralize the right of private parties to sue under the Voting Rights Act. Okay? So, what they have is Judge Strass, Trump-appointed judge, is taking the Sandoval decision and just running from zero to 60 with it and saying there is no right of there's no right to sue coming from private parties under the Voting Rights Act. Now, again, Milheiser goes on to say, quote, this decision is fundamentally unfair to Congress, as Sandoval was handed down nearly four decades after the Voting Rights Act became law. So Congress couldn't possibly have known that it had to write the law in a particular way if it wanted to authorize private lawsuits, end quote. Again, back to the spirit and the letter of the law. These, I'm just going to call it, these conservative bastards that are pushing the letter of the law and saying, well, unless the law reads like a grocery list, if your item's not on the grocery list, it doesn't cover. All right? You know, it's like saying, hmm, slavery is outlawed, except in the case of lawful incarceration. You know, our slavery is outlawed, but you know what? If you're married to a conservative man, you could still be a slave. You know, again, this is nonsense. Our law, the idea of the practice of law, the idea of rule of law, rule of law, there are general large principles, you know, that we all pretty much agree on. It starts back it go, even before, you know, um, Magna Carta, even the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, okay? It doesn't say thou shalt not steal, but you can steal you know, if it's something, you know, not mentioned on the list of things you can't steal. The rule of law is statement of principle. Law should not have to read like a grocery list. And when I say grocery list, what I'm really saying is, you know, if your particular item's not on that list, it's not covered. That is skullduggery hiding behind legal jargon. It's garbage. Now, Milheiser explains further, though, it's also, quote, it's also not entirely clear that Sandoval cuts off private suits 
under the Voting Rights Act, even if it applied retroactively. Now, again, Judge Strass is saying, no right, he's taking the stand of all decision, running with saying, and retroactively saying there was never a right of private groups to sue. Wow, that's dangerous. Because when you apply it retroactively, that's saying, again, there was never a right for private groups to, to sue, meaning that those past decisions would what, be nullified and Jim Crow could legally come roaring back? Follow the line of thought here. Follow the logic. It's possible. And Judge Strass knows it. Okay? Um, again, uh, it goes on to say, quote, recall that the inquiry under Sandoval hinges on whether a statute refers to the entity it seeks to regulate rather than the individuals protected by that statute but the Voting Rights Act uses both kinds of language, okay? So, it is unclear. Now, I'm gonna move down here. Let me check the time. I know there's a lot we're covering today. Think about what this means, okay? This is really garbage law. Okay? And these judges that were appointed by Trump, they were appointed because they had made these statements before. They were appointed because these judges were racist, because these judges were misogynist, because these ju judges, some were anti-Semitic. There's no guesswork here. And their job was to dismantle any equal rights, period. And that's what they're doing. Okay? Now, Millheiser goes on to say, quote, while the relevant provision starts with the phrase, quote, no voting qualification or prerequisite to voting or standard practice or procedure shall be imposed or applied by any state, end quote, it goes on to forbid any voting practice which results in a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote, end quote. <clears throat> now, we can go into this forever, and we're going to be talking about it again. I'm not, I don't want to overload you guys. I know this is a lot to take in, but I wanted you to get basic ideas, okay? Um, Sandoval, which is the 01 decision, also states that, quote, the judicial task is to interpret the statute Congress has passed to determine whether it displays an intent to create not just a private right, but also a private remedy. End quote. And that, quote, statutory intent on this latter point is determinative, end quote. And there is overwhelming evidence that Congress intended to create a private right of action when it created the, when it wrote the Voting Rights Act. Okay. How in the hell can you anybody know intent? All right. This is the Judge Strass looking for any excuse to dismantle this really important act. For those of you that think, well, I'm not black, it doesn't affect me, or my state doesn't do that, so I don't need to worry about it. Once a right is taken, or to try to take a right away from one person or one group, we are all in danger. That's it. This is not the time to say, well, I'm not interested in politics. Every time I hear that, and a lot of times it's women, I want to smack them, seriously. You know, when you say you're not interested in politics, what you're saying is you're willing to basically 
give up your rights and let someone else decide things. And then you have no right to complain because you abdicated your responsibility. Okay. Now, Congress has, according to this article, amended the Voting Rights Act multiple times. Um, but Congress, according to Milheiser, quote, never questioned the longstanding assumption that the law permits private lawsuits. End quote. And of course it is, because it, it's right there, okay? Because in a lot of the states where Jim Crow laws pervaded, you couldn't count on the state legislature or the governor, or much less the attorney general, to, to do anything fair. That wasn't going to happen. Private parties have to have the right to bring lawsuits. And, and here's the other thing. When you talk about precedence, it's so important. If these goddamn conservative judges can strip the right to sue by private parties from one law, they can do it to a bunch of others. And if you, you can say you have all these rights, but guess what? If you don't have the right to sue as an individual or a private group, if only government officials have the right to sue, then you don't have any rights. Wake up, folks. Okay? Now, this article goes on to say that federal civil rights law also has what uh, Millheiser calls a catch-all statute, and it's known as Section 1983. And Section 1983, as documented by 42 U.S. Code 1983, Cornell School of Law, okay, uh, it permits state officials to be sued, quote, if they deprive someone of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws, okay? So I guarantee you the next thing these bastard judges will be going after is Section 1983. Just obvious, okay? The Voting Rights Law uh, Act law also, quote, secures the right to be free from race discrimination in elections. Millheiser goes on to say, quote, that means even that means that even if the Voting Rights Act itself doesn't authorize a private cause of action, Section 1983 permits lawsuits seeking to enforce the rights created by the Voting Rights Act. It goes on to say, quote, indeed, the Supreme Court just reaffirmed in health and Hospital Corporation v. Tulevsky in 2023, that Section 1983 gives private individuals, quote, broad authority to sue to enforce their statutory rights, end quote. According to Milheiser, Strass's, Judge Strass's theory and approach isn't just simply wrong. He quotes, quote, it's obviously wrong. Uh, and Milheiser, so I'm just going to read this. Milheiser says the following, quote, Strass's approach, in other words, isn't simply wrong. It is obviously wrong. And his Arkansas opinion will lead to disastrous results if it is not reversed. As the Supreme Court warned in Allen v. State Board of Elections, 1969, the Voting Rights Act, quote, could be severely hampered if each citizen were required to depend solely on litigation instituted at the discretion of the Attorney General, end quote. Among other things, quote, the Attorney General has a limited staff and often might be unable to uncover quickly new state policies that target voters of color. Goes on, Milheiser goes on to say, quote, in fact, Strass's approach would likely shut down the Voting Rights Act almost in its entirety, whether Republicans control the White House. During the tr entire Trump administration, the Justice Department's voting section brought only one lawsuit alleging discrimination under the Voting Rights Act, and that was a fairly minor suit alleging 
that the method of electing school board members in a South Dakota school district, quote, dilutes the voting strength of American Indian citizens, end quote. Okay. Again, folks, wake up. All right. We're, okay, we're almost at the half. Well, it's at the um, halfway part. We're not going to talk more about Judge Branch. We can talk about that another time. you got to remember, these two decisions, Arkansas and Rose, if they had been handed down to Credit Millheiser a year ago, um, they would have looked like in a, uh, basically an effort by lower courts to, quote, move in the same direction. The Supreme Court's been moving for several years. Because before Milligan, the Roberts Court, Chief Justice John Roberts, um, they've been, according to Milheiser, uh, almost unrelentingly hostile. So Shelby, the Shelby decision, that's Shelby County v. Holder, that was handed down in 2013. Quote, the, in Shelby County v. Holder, the court's Republican appointees simply made, up, simply made up a doctrine. Quote, the principle that all states enjoy equal sovereignty end quote, that it's never once mentioned in the Constitution in order to justify striking down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Then again, in Brnovich v. DNC in 2021, the Supreme Court similarly made up a bunch of limits on the Voting Rights Act that cannot be found anywhere in any legal text, such as a strong presumption that voting restrictions that were in place in 1982 are lawful, end quote. <coughs> and it's hogwash. John Roberts made up shit. That's it. Okay? The idea that states enjoy equal sovereignty was his excuse to get rid of the preclearance requirement. You know, all states do not enjoy equal, hosti- uh, equal sovereignty, sovereignty when the southern states with a history of Jim Crow laws that were egregious violations of voting rights against the black community. Newsflash. No, they lost that right because they abuse people, communities of color. You know, what Southern states did with Jim Crow is criminal. And like criminals, no, they lost some rights. They can't be trusted, and that's why preclearance was a requirement of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, to make sure that these Southern states, the neo-Confederacy, couldn't just make up more shit. It's really what it is. Okay? Now, Justice Elena Kagan looked at those precedents and she basically said that, you know, these decisions mostly inhabit, quote, a law-free zone, and she's right. Um, You know, the Roberts Court has basically made ending the Voting Rights Act and destroying it. That's been John Roberts, his crusade since his, his days as an attorney for the Department of Justice. And he, he went after that crusade with relish. So the claim that John Roberts isn't racist is bullshit. He's a vile racist. He just does racism with a smiley face. That's all. But he has been hostile. He's, he's made destroying the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and bringing Jim Crow roaring back his life's crusade. Okay. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And again, the Shelby decision, again, there was another piece. This was done, uh, let's see now, again by Milheiser, who's really quite brilliant, back in 2020. 
and it was Chief Justice Roberts' lifelong crusade against voting rights explained. He has fought to undermine voting rights his entire career. Okay? And it goes back, according to this article, I'm just going to talk about it a little bit. When John Roberts was 26 years old, just out of law school, man, there has to be some real bigotry and racism built into a person to be that hateful in their 20s. 1981, Robert, John Roberts had completed a prestigious clerkship with Justice William Rehnquist on the Supreme Court. Again, Rehnquist was no friend to democracy. Um, he was also an aide to Attorney General William French Smith. And according to this article, quote, Roberts was tasked with making the case against one of the most consequential voting rights laws in the nation's history. So whether John Roberts was a racist who really believed the racism or whether he was a racist and an opportunist is irrelevant. <clears throat> He's been fighting this his whole career. Now, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Give me a second. Let me get a little more coffee here. <clears throat> 1981. Okay. And, you know, again, they talk about the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It dismantled much of Jim Crow. And one of the key provisions, okay, so quote, the House had recently passed legislation extending the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So in 1981, the House had just voted to extend the law. Now, I know some of you wouldn't remember, well, Reagan signed, you know, to extend the law, and so did George W. Bush. Not because they wanted to, because they had to. <coughs> it would have looked too bad if they had it. <coughs> so, and in 19... Um, 81, it shored up, quote, one of its key provisions after a 1980 Supreme Court decision had severely weakened the law. So there was a 1980 Supreme Court decision, let's see now if I can get this, um, which was the city of Mobile, Alabama, at Al v. Bolden at Al, okay, coming out of the Fifth Circuit. Okay, let me get back here. Uh, and it weakened one of the key provisions so when the House, when when Congress extended, when they extended the Voting Rights Act, they strengthened it as well in 1981 to um, make sure the Supreme Court couldn't dismantle it again. And John Roberts was really upset about it. In fact, Roberts wrote, quote, something must be done to educate the senators on the seriousness of this problem. And this is uh, something Roberts wrote to his boss, uh, what is it, William French Smith. And this is government, this is from the congressional record, okay? Um, so this goes on to say, um, Robert Roach's boss Smith just a few days before Christmas. In a subsequent memo, he argued that the rapidly advancing bill, which now forms much of the backbone of the American voting rights law, was, quote, not only constitutionally suspect, but also contrary to the most fundamental tenets of the legislative process on which the laws of this country are based, end quote. Now, Roberts, again, Milheiser goes on to say, quote, Roberts' early crusade against voting rights ended in failure. Though President Reagan preferred a weaker voting rights law, he once described the Voting Rights Act as, quote, humiliating to the South. 
end quote. But, you know, Reagan signed it anyway <coughs> because of political pressure. <coughs> oh, sorry, folks. I mean, look at that. This is according to the New York Times. Okay. All right. It's documented by the New York Times. Ronald Reagan thought that the voting, the Strengthened Voting Rights Act, he was worried because it was humiliating to the South. So what? I don't give a damn what the biggest in the South wants. <clears throat> but so Roberts had his little, John Roberts his little hissy fit, but he kept rising within government. And then George W. Bush made him Chief Justice in 05, another crime committed by W. All right. So basically, as Chief Justice, Justice Roberts sometimes shows moderation. Okay. So what? He hasn't shown moderation on voting rights. And again, that was the Shelby Counter v. Holder, you know, decision here. <coughs> Sorry about all the coughing. So the Shelby decision is a baby. And what it basically did, it dealt with preclearance, as I said before. So that under the Voting Rights Act, jurisdictions, quote, with a history of racist voting discrimination, um, end quote, they had to pre-clear any new voting-related laws with the Justice Department or federal judges in Washington, D.C. Um, but this preclearance provision was initially scheduled to expire five years after the law was signed in 1965. I'm just reading straight from this. Quote, that meant that in 1970, while Richard Nixon was president, Congress had to decide whether to extend the preclearance requirement or allow it to expire. And because Congress never made the preclearance requirement permanent, Congress also chose to extend this requirement again in 1975, in 1982, and in 2006. End quote. Okay, here's part of the problem. Why the hell didn't Congress make the preclearance requirement permanent? I don't know, maybe they're afraid of the state's rights nonsense, who knows. But it goes on to say, quote, each time the Voting Rights Act was renewed, it was signed by a Republican president, fair's fair, including at least two Republicans who previously criticized the law, okay? Uh, at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst political science Jesse Rhodes lays out in his book titled Ballot Block, the Political Erosion of the Voting Rights Act, Quote, conservative Republicans and Southern Democrats often attempted to weaken the act during the congressional debates over renewal, but they were repeatedly outflanked by liberal lawmakers and by civil rights advocates, end quote. Okay, so this goes on. <coughs> Hold on a second. I am just having some issues today. It's gotten cold here, plus the coughing. Oh, my God. So Nixon apparently um, tried first. President Nixon first proposed he wanted to eliminate the preclearance provision. But he was also going to support proposed provisions that strengthen other parts of the law. Now, the parts that he was, going to, he was uh, going to support included, quote, bans on literacy tests and state residency requirements for voters in presidential elections. Okay, but then it goes on to say, quote, but civil rights organizations united against Nixon's plan to undercut preclearance, um, while Senator Strom Thurmond, the former segregationist presidential candidate, declared that, quote, 
If we have to have some voting rights bill, I would hope it would be the administration's, end quote. Now, Nixon did abandon his opposition to preclearance, and he signed a Voting Rights Act renewal that was more expansive. Okay, and the final bill did include Nixon's provisions banning literacy tests and residency requirements. Okay, now, 12 years later, something similar happened during Robert's failed efforts to water down the 1982 renewal, okay? So I'm going to check our time here. So you get the idea, all right? John Roberts has been against this for a long time. So once again, we're going to move ahead. I wanted you to understand. Now, when, one thing, why, why, what, in the Shelby case, what excuse did Roberts give to get rid of it? And you know, this is, it, it's really, it's really something. I, I'm looking for it right now. Um, hold on a second, folks. This, all righty. <clears throat> okay, I lost my place. Sorry, folks. So Roberts wrote the majority opinion in Shelby County. And basically he said that the United States just isn't racist enough to justify a full, fully um, operational Voting Rights Act, okay? Um, that's really what it is. And because he didn't see it himself, oh, the racism's not there, right? Unbelievable. And, and part of it was because, well, we have a black president now, so of course things aren't that bad. You know, it, it just was that superficial, truthfully. So there's more here. We're not going to go over it all today because we, we're going to revisit this, but I want to get to another story. So I hope you learned something on this one. <clears throat> okay. We're going to take a little break here and then move on to our next story about the Insurrection Act and Project 2025. <laughs> And we're back. Okay. So the next one, again, this is kind of part of an ongoing uh, series on Project 2025. Project 2025 is the basically blueprint to establish a presidential dictatorship sponsored by the Heritage Foundation and several other uh, extremist groups. Okay? Make no mistake about it. These are people that want to destroy democracy itself. And I don't give a damn what Rance Priebus has to say. So we have, and we know that one of the things they want to do, and Donald Trump, you know, the walking id that he is, just, you know, amongst the word salad, he also, you know, you know says what he really wants to do. And one of it is he wants to be able to use the Insurrection Act and stick military troops against fellow Americans from day one. Sounds Hitlerian to me. So again, from the Brennan Center, which is out of New York University Law School, we have this article here by Joseph Nunn. 
Um, and again, this ties directly in with Project 2025. Now, it should be mentioned that the Heritage Foundation has claimed that there is nothing in Project 2025 in this 1,000-page manual that specifically states that a president can use and will, you know, will be permitted to use um, the Insurrection Act against fellow Americans. Well, maybe it doesn't exactly say that, but again, in law, it's not just what they say specifically, it's what they leave out. It does grant the president, though, the right to utilize the Insurrection Act at will. There are no restrictions. <clears throat> so it's within that framework that, yes, it does allow that. <clears throat> so this piece was written by Joseph Nunn, November 17th. And um, headline is, Trump wants to use the military against his domestic enemies. Congress must act. The Insurrection Act, which gives the president unchecked power to deploy the military in American streets, is a threat to democracy. And it is. The Insurrection Act is an old law. And this article first appeared in Slate. So Trump would invoke the Insurrection Act, you know, basically from day one. Now, what none is saying is Congress has to act to reform the Insurrection Act. Now, you have to get a little history here. So federal military forces are usually forbidden from enforcing civilian laws by what's called the Passe Comitatus Act. <coughs> and this prohibition, as none calls it, you know, basically it, it's a tradition in American law that the idea that turning the military against the public is a threat to democracy, because, you know, it is. The problem is Posse Comitatus Act is not an absolute rule. It does, quote, allow federal troops to participate in law enforcement when doing so has been expressly authorized by Congress. Now, how does that happen? Well, according to Mr. Nunn, quote, the Insurrection Act provides that authorization. The intent behind the act is to allow the president to use the military to assist civilian authorities when they are overwhelmed by an insurrection, rebellion, or other civil unrest, or to enforce civil rights laws when state or local governments can't or won't enforce them. In such cases, a narrow exception to the general rule against using the military for law enforcement makes good sense. The problem is that the Insurrection Act creates a giant loophole in the Posse Comitatus Act rather than a limited exception to it. Excuse me. <laughs> and so, Mr. Nunn goes on to explain, and this is really important, quote, the Insurrection Act's central failing is that it grants virtually limitless discretion to the president. Okay? It goes on to say, quote, it's vague and archaic language. It was first enacted in 1792 and last updated in 1874, provides little meaningful guidance as to what situations do or not or do not warrant deployment. Okay? This is really important. You've got this really old law. It gives the power, it gives basically up any president limitless power. It, it basically authorizes the president to have a private army. And because the language is so vague and confusing, what can you do? Um, and so they, you know, Mr. Nunn talks about one provision that, quote, empowers the president to use the military or, quote, any other means 
to, quote, take such measures as he considers necessary to suppress any unlawful combination or conspiracy that opposes or obstructs the execution of the laws of the United States or impedes the course of justice under those laws, end quote. Put bluntly, according to none, I agree with him, this gives unlimited power to the president. Basically, the president has a private army, and they could arrest, detain anyone if they just say they think they're conspiring to intimidate or anything else. It's, it's lawlessness. Now, what makes it worse, according to Mr. Nunn, is that the Supreme Court has a ruling, again, back in 1827, that, quote, the president alone decides whether invoking the Insurrection Act is justified. The courts may not review or second-guess that determination, end quote. Do you know how dangerous that is? That's insanity. Because of this garbage ruling in 1827, the president alone, quote, decides whether invoking the Insurrection Act is justified and that the courts may not review or second-guess that determination. That's granting any president a private army that the courts cannot go after him. That's saying a president, under certain circumstances, is above the law. Garbage. <clears throat> this is the danger. And Trump knows it. He may express it in childish ways, but he knows he can get away with it. <clears throat> I'm sorry, folks. <clears throat> This is what we're dealing with here. And Congress has refused and failed to update the Insurrection Act. Um, there are certain sections that look pretty much the same as when Congress first passed the first version in 1792, uh, except, quote, that safeguards in the original law that allowed the courts or Congress to check the president's authority have long since been removed, end quote. Do you hear that? The first version of the Insurrection Act that was written in 1792 actually did have safeguards that did say the courts or Congress have a right to, to basically look at the president's authority to use the Insurrection Act and say, no, you don't have that right. But those safeguards have been removed. We have less protection now than we had in 1792. Think about that. Um, You know, this is really dangerous. And again, you don't see Congress doing anything about it. So I wanted, this is the part of Project 2025 that, again, is very real. Um, and Trump has made it clear, you know, he's, you know, he's basically stated that he'll suspend the Constitution, you know, and that's his documented. <coughs> by his own words in the New York Times. He'll build vast deportation camps. Again, New York Times. Weaponize the Department of Justice, CBS News, and mass firing career civil servants, which, that's CNN. You have to realize the mass firing of career civil servants would cause total chaos but it would make sure he had loyalists that would be willing to break the law to basically, you know, do what Herr Fuhrer tells him to do. This is what it is. Okay, check our time here. 
It's really important that you understand this. Okay. Um, you know, again, this is something we need to look at. All right. So we're going to move ahead now. I'm going to take a break, and we're going to move ahead with this letter that was written by, uh, it's an editorial letter, actually, by George Conway. You know, he's a licensed attorney. He is now divorced from that bitch, Kellyanne, from form, former federal judge J. Michael Luddig and Barbara Comstock, okay? The writers are all lawyers. Mr. Conway was in private practice. Mr. Luddig um, was a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit from 1991 to 2006, and Ms. Comstock represented Virginia's 10th District in Congress from 2015 to 2019. They serve on the board of the newly formed Society for the Rule of Law Institute, and they published this uh, editorial letter November 21st in the New York Times, and I'm going to read it in a minute. We're going to take a break. Give me a second here. finish up this show. Okay, so here is the letter I was talking about. I'm going to read it in its entirety because I think it has something valuable to say, although I still think it's kind of weak sauce given the moment we're in. It's titled, The Trump Threat is Growing. Lawyers Must Rise to Meet This Moment. Oops, just lost. And again, by George Conway, Former federal judge J. Michael Luddig and Barbara Comstock. American democracy, the Constitution, and the rule of law are the righteous causes of our time, and the nation's legal profession is obligated to support them. But with the acquiescence of the larger conservative legal movement, these pillars of our system of governance are increasingly in peril. The dangers will only grow should Donald Trump be returned to the White House next November. Recent reporting about plans for a second Trump presidency are frightening. He would stock his administration with partisan loyalists committed to fast-tracking his agenda and sidestepping, if not circumventing altogether, existing laws and long-established legal norms. <clears throat> this would include appointing to a high public office political appointees to rubber stamp his plans to investigate and exact retribution against his political opponents, make federal public servants removable at will by the president himself, 
and invoke special powers to take unilateral action on First Amendment protected activities, criminal justice, elections, immigration, and more. We have seen him try this before, though fortunately he was thwarted, he would say betrayed, by executive branch lawyers and by judges who refused to go along with his more draconian and often unlawful policies in his effort to remain in office after being cast out by voters. But should Mr. Trump return to the White House, he will arrive with a coterie of lawyers and advisors who, like him, are determined not to be thwarted again. The Federalist Society, long the standard bearer for the conservative legal movement, has failed to respond in this period of crisis. That is why we need an organization of conservative lawyers committed to the foundational constitutional principles we once all agreed upon, the primacy of American democracy, the sanctity of the Constitution and the rule of law, the independence of the courts, the inviolability of elections and mutual support among those tasked with the solemn responsibility of enforcing the laws of the United States. This new organization must step up, speak out, and defend these ideals. Leaders of the legal profession should be asking themselves, what role did we play in creating this ongoing legal emergency? But so far, there have been no such post-mortem reflection, and none appears on the horizon. Many lawyers who served in the last administration and many on the outside who occupy positions of influence within the conservative legal community have instead stood largely silent, asserting, uh, I'm sorry, assenting to the recent assault on America's fragile democracy. <coughs> sorry. We were members of the Federal Society or followed the organization early in our careers. Created in response to left liberal domination of the courts, it served a principled role, connecting young lawyers with one another and with career opportunities, promoting constitutional scholarship, and ultimately providing candidates for the federal bench and Supreme Court. <clears throat> but the Federal Society has conspicuously declined to speak out against the, against the constitutional and other legal excesses of Mr. Trump and his administration. Most notably, it has failed to reckon with the effort to overturn the last presidential election and its continued denial that he lost the election, that he lost that election. When White House lawyers are inventing cockamamie theories to stop the peaceful transition of power and copying pleas to avoid jail time, it's clear that we in the legal profession have come to a crisis point. We are thankful that there were lawyers in the Trump administration who opted to resign or be fired rather than advance his flagrantly unconstitutional schemes. They should be lauded. But these exceptions were notably few and far between. Wow, this is longer than I thought it was. Okay, I'm going to do it justice, though. Um, more alarming is the growing crowd of grifters, frauds, and con men willing to subvert the Constitution and long-established constitutional principles for the whims of political expediency. The actions of these conservative Republican lawyers are increasingly becoming the new normal. For a group of lawyers sworn to uphold the Constitution, this is an indictment of the nation's legal profession. Any legal movement that could foment such a constitutional abdication and attract a sufficient number of lawyers willing to advocate its unlawful causes is ripe for a major reckoning. We must rebuild a conservative legal movement that supports and defends American democracy, the Constitution and the rule of law, and that incentivizes and promotes those lawyers who are prepared to do the same. To that end, we have formed a nonprofit organization, the Society for the Rule of Law Institute, to bring sanity back to conservative lawyering and jurisprudence. 
There is a need and demand for this new legal movement that the legal profession can readily meet. Pro-democracy, pro-rule of law lawyers who populate our law school campuses, law firms, and the courts decry what is happening in our profession. They deserve an outlet to productively challenge these, channel these sentiments. Originally formed in 2018 as checks and balances during what we took to be the height of Mr. Trump's threat to the rule of law, the organization spoke out against this transgression. Since then, the legal landscape has deteriorated to a degree we failed to imagine, with Mr. Trump and his allies explicitly threatening to upend fundamental tenets of the American constitutional system if returned to power. We believe it is necessary to build a legal movement with the capability to recruit and engage dues-paying members, file legal briefs, provide mentorship and career opportunities, convene supporters, and speak out as vocally and forthrightly as is necessary to meet the urgencies this moment requires. Almost done. Okay. Um, lost my place. Sorry. Ah. Uh, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Whoops. Okay, here it is. First and foremost, this movement will work to inspire young legal talent and connect them with professional opportunities that will enable them to fulfill their vast potential without having to compromise their convictions. Second, the movement will focus on building a large body of scholarship to counteract the new orthodoxy of anti-constitutional and anti-democratic law being churned out by the fever swamp. The Constitution cannot defend itself. Lawyers and legal scholars must. Conservative scholars like the former federal appellate judges Michael McConnell and Thomas Griffin and the law professor Keith Whittington, who joins Yale from Princeton next year, are models for a new and more responsible conservative legal movement. Third and most important, we will marshal principled voices to speak out against the endless stream of falsehood and authoritarian legal theories that are being propagated almost daily. To do otherwise would be to cede the field to lawyers of bad faith. We have seen in recent years what the unchecked spread of wildly untrue and anti-democratic lies gets us. We lawyers have a gift for advocacy and persuasion. We must use it. Almost there. <coughs> While those, <coughs> sorry. While those in the pro-democracy legal community, many of them progressives, might disagree with our overall legal philosophy. We welcome them with open arms. We are at a point when commitment to fundamental classical liberal tenets of our Republican form of government is far more important than partisan politics and political parties, and even philosophical questions about the law. Our country comes first, and our country is in a constitutional emergency, if not a constitutional crisis. We all must act accordingly, especially us lawyers, end quote. So I agree with a lot of what he's saying, but I have... I have some questions. I welcome this commitment to restore, restore true rule of law and constitutional precepts. I do. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I talk with our cops. When I hear we have to have, for instance, outlets so that these young lawyers can have these, these career opportunities. No. You know what? If you are principled, you're not only principled when it's convenient for you professionally or convenient for you civilly, you're also principled when it is difficult to maintain those principles. And I think one of the things we need to do is make law school more affordable. I'm just going to say it, okay? We need to make law school more affordable 
so that we have more lawyers. And we need to push the idea that the law should actually be written. You can have the legal jargon, but then they should be forced to translate it in plain terms. It is patently unreasonable to tell people that ignorance of the law is no excuse, but it's written in such a way that you must have, what, a three-year postgraduate degree to understand what the law actually says? That's nonsense. <coughs> if anything, lawyers should be arguing cases, not acting as legal dictionaries. That's what they do. Now, we need to make law school more affordable, and um, we need to, and, and really, all lawyers must be held accountable. So, for instance, when a lawyer, everybody has a right to a defense, even Donald Trump, as, as vile as he is. But when you have a client like Donald Trump, and you know they're lying, you know what they're doing constitutes treason, you have, as a lawyer, a more important obligation to rule of law. And that's not happening. When you have lawyers like John Eastman pushing theories that are pure nonsense, or judges like Judge Stratton doing the same thing, they not only should be investigated and most likely disbarred, same lawyers and judges should be criminally investigated and if need be criminally prosecuted and incarcerated. Because guess what? When you push legal theories that fly in the face of what the Constitution means, that's treason. So this is better, not good enough. Okay? The lawyers know what they're doing. And the fact is they will, a lot of these conservative lawyers don't believe in equal rights. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> they just don't. So when you talk about conservative principles, well, you know, these are the same ones that have no problems with the Voting Rights Act being dismantled. You know, the idea being that whether it's a republic, which is representative democracy, or direct democracy, everybody should be equal under the eyes of the law, and they're not. It's really that simple. But I wanted to read that to give you an idea. There are a few that are trying to do the right thing. Although, again, you know, there's plenty of progressives that have been fighting the good fight. And no, they don't have career opportunities for that. And no, they don't get paid for it. They do it because it's the right thing to do. Okay? All right. So now I'm going to check our time here. We've got two more, two more features. So first we're going to move to our Jackass of the Week Award. Okay, give me a second. All right. Why do you think? Oops, sorry. Okay, here we go. So, uh, uh, welcome to PNN Jackass of the Week Awards, where we award supreme acts of jackassery. Rayon, Jack, Rayon. Okay, so this week, we actually, I said we have a twofer, and we do. Our, our, it's not exactly a twofer, okay? We've got a major jackass and one that, you know, again, his act of jackassery is so routine that he's really, uh, he gets the jackass, jackass of the Week Award, Junior. So the Junior Award goes to, again, Ron DeSantis, 
was this poop map. You know, he during the debate with uh, Gavin Newsom, he produced this alleged map of feces, I guess, around town in San Francisco. I don't know why, but once again, it just showed that Ron DeSantis, you know, this man, he's, he's a product of Ivy League schools, and he's just so effing retarded. I, I, I'm just going to say it. But our major jackass of the week, girl, is Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana. Now, this is during a, a uh, an argument where he was, I think John Kennedy, Senator John Kennedy was questioning this doctor about the violence in urban areas. And, you know, John Kennedy was using, it wasn't even thinly veiled racist code, okay? He just went full-blown racist dog whistle. So I'm going to let you listen to this. Give me a minute. Why do you think that Chicago has become America's largest outdoor shooting range? Do you think it's because of Chicago citizens uh, who have no criminal record but, but who have a, a awfully a gun in their home for protection or perhaps for hunting? Or do you think it's because of a finite group of criminals who have rap sheets <laughs> as long as King Kong's arm? So Mississippi, Louisiana, and Missouri actually have higher firearm death rates. Um, obviously, there's certain... What about Chicago? So I don't live in Chicago. It's not my primary area of research. Okay. Why do you think... So, translation, what John Kennedy was saying is, you got black folk in Chicago, right? So, of course, it's more dangerous than his home state of Louisiana or my home state of Missouri, except according to the Centers for Disease, the Centers for Disease Control, um, it's red states, including states like Louisiana and Missouri, that have the highest rate of gun deaths. So for that, and so many other reasons, because Senator John Kennedy doesn't let a moment escape where he can't show his racist cred, so for that, he has our major Jackass of the Week Award. Ray on, Senator Ted, Senator John Kennedy, you jackass. He never sounded more intelligent. Supreme act of jackassery. And actually, he's in the running for our annual jackass of the jackass of the year award. All right, so we're almost done tonight. I hope you learned something. We have one more little feature, and of course, it's. We won't have anything on Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene this week. No, my little Margie, it will be returning. But we do have uh, a delightful musical interlude about George Santos from, from Randy Rainbow. So I'm going to get that ready for you right now. Give it a minute. Come on. Having trouble getting it, folks. Give me a minute. We love Randy Rainbow. Okay, we're going to start it from the beginning, okay? This is from his Twitter account. 
Give me a second. Here we go. And it's Girl Bye, George St.
The time is to make sure that Donald Trump does not get back into office, ever. Seriously. And it's time for those progressives to grow up. Seriously. Because do you really think Donald Trump's going to piddle ass around with you? He's not. Okay. And I would end this by reminding everybody of a quote, it's not direct quote, it's paraphrase, of a statement made by the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. where he reminded people that everything Hitler did in the lead up and including the Holocaust was technically legal. And Project 2025 is going the same direction. Make no mistake about it. The question is, will you sit on the sidelines like a little coward or will you do the right thing? With that, I say bless us and we're going to need it. Good night.